Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. How many of you have ever had one of those come to Jesus moments? Have you ever had one of those come to Jesus moments? They're awkward, aren't they? But they're necessary. That There are times in all of our lives where we're just not doing well that we're not living according to the character or to the convictions that we have, and somebody who knows us and somebody who loves us, they're willing to pull us in, sit us down, and have those difficult conversations. We call those the come-to-Jesus moments. You ever had one of those? Right, they're pretty intense. How many of you ever seen the TV show Intervention? Okay, have you ever seen that? Okay, Ashley likes watching that. It, it, it's, it's very intense. Basically, the premise of the show is this, is that there is someone... Uh, maybe a friend or maybe a family member who's making very poor decisions. That the decisions that they're making are heading them down towards a path of chaos or death or destruction. And the family has finally reached a point to where they just can't keep going anymore. They say, we love you, but we can't keep going this way. We, we want to bless you, but we can't support you anymore. And so there's something in your life that's going to have to change. Maybe that person's an alcoholic. Maybe they're a drug addict. Maybe they're a hoarder. Maybe they have 19 cats. I don't know, whatever it is. But they finally reached a point to where the family can no longer bless them or support them. Something in their life has to change. And in that moment, really, the entire future depends on what they decide to do. Right? Are they going to get bitter or are they going to get better? Are they going to receive the correction or will they reject the correction? Will they get offended and get angry and upset? Or will they humble themselves and say, you know what? Yes, I need help. And then they accept and get the help that they need. They have a decision that they have to make. Will they change or will they stay the same? It's an intervention. It's a come to Jesus moment. We've all had these come to Jesus moments. In fact, uh, this week as I was working on this sermon, I, I began to think about some come to Jesus moments that I've had. One that really stands out to me is um, from my pastor back in Houston. Whenever I, I was, me and Ashley were planting churches in Houston, I was a brand new pastor and we had been there for about two years and over time, my heart just wasn't in it anymore that I was no longer living according to the convictions and the character that I knew that I was supposed to have as a pastor or a husband or a leader. And the pastor could tell, and my wife could tell, and everybody in my life, they could begin to tell. And so the pastor loved me enough to be able to pull me in and to be able to have the difficult conversation. See, my pastor, what he did was this. He, he called me on the phone and says, he says, Byron, I love you, but we're going to need to have to have a talk. We're going to have to have a come to Jesus moment. And he took me out for dinner, and then he just spoke straight truth in love to me. He didn't beat me up, but he didn't beat around the bush either. He just said it exactly the way it was, that there were some things in my life that needed to change. You ever have one of those conversations? I praise God for friends and pastors who are willing to have the difficult conversations, the come to Jesus moments. Sometimes you have to have the come to Jesus moment. In fact, the book of Proverbs actually writes about this. Here's what the book of Proverbs says. Proverbs says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If you only hang around with people who tell you exactly what you want to hear, okay, then you're never going to grow up. 
If you only hang around people who just tell you how awesome and special and wonderful and amazing you are, and you're a rock star, never change. Guess what's never going to happen? You're never going to change. Sometimes you have to have the difficult conversation. Sometimes you have to have the intervention. Sometimes you have to have that come to Jesus moments. I thank God for those come to Jesus moments. And as I was thinking about it, I owe a lot of my life to that come to Jesus moments that I seriously do not believe that I would be the husband that I am, the father that I am, the friend that I am. I do not believe that I would have the family that I do, and I do not believe that I would be the pastor that I am today. And without that conversation, quite possibly, Redemption Church would not exist because I wouldn't have been in ministry anymore. I had to make a decision. What am I going to do in that moment? Am I going to get bitter or will I get better? Will I reject it or will I accept it? Will I change or will I stay the same? It was a come to Jesus moment for me. How many of you ever had one of those? That's the same thing that we're going to actually see today. The disciples are quite literally going to have a come to Jesus moment. If you have your Bibles, turn with you to Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 42, and here's what the sermon title is called. You ready? Jesus gets real. Hey, Jesus is going to get real with his disciples. Okay, Jesus is going to have an intervention for them. Jesus, he is going to call them out. He is going to not beat them up, but build them up because he sees the purpose and the potential that they have in their lives. He has called them. He has chosen them, but they are not living according to the convictions that they have. They're messing up and slipping up, and he knows they can do better, and so he sits them down, and he has a come-to-Jesus moment. Okay, Jesus is going to get real with them, and here's the big idea behind this sermon is that Jesus gets real with us so that way we can get real with him. Okay, are you ready to get real with Jesus? Are you ready to quit pretending and to quit playing games, to quit placating religion and have all the cool Christian cliches to say, but you have no real faith behind it? Are you ready to get rid of all the things that hinder you and hold you back? Are you ready to lay it down and to live your life totally devoted, full-throated, passion, purpose, excitement in your lives? Are you ready to get real with Jesus? Because when you get real with Jesus, that's when Jesus gets real to you. And so what I'm going to do today is this. I'm going to ask three real questions to help you get real with Jesus. Okay, we're going to walk through the text, got three points, got three questions, and I believe that each one of these questions are going to help you get real with Jesus so that way Jesus can get real with you. The first question is this, y'all ready? Are you leading people to Jesus Or are you leading people from Jesus? Okay, I told you he's going to get real. You can either do one or the other, but you can't do both. You can either lead people to Jesus, or you will lead people from him. Here's actually what Jesus says. He sits down with his disciples, and he tells them this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone to be hung around his neck and for him to be thrown into the sea. If you're going to lead people away from Jesus, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into the bottom of the ocean and into the deepest sea. You can either lead people to Jesus or you can lead people from Jesus. Which one are you doing? Okay, 
We all have people that we know and love who do not know and love Jesus. I'm sure that we do. Maybe a friend, maybe a family member, maybe a coworker, could be a spouse. We all have someone that we know and love who does not yet know and love Jesus. And if you're a Christian, then all of us have a privilege, a responsibility, a great commission. We have a call in our lives to lead as many people to Jesus as possible. Some of you here today, you're like, I think he's trying to get me saved. I am, that's my job. Right? I wanna see everyone meet Jesus. If you're a Christian, that should be your heart, that should be your passion, that should be your desire as well, that you wanna lead people to Jesus. Back in our Life Change Through Jesus series that we did in August, it was a vision series, and I challenged every single person in our church to lead one, people to, one person to Christ by the end of the year. Okay, and I'm seeing many, many of you who have already begun to do that. December 1st, we're gonna have baptism service, and some of you, you're gonna get to baptize your one person. I wholeheartedly believe that every single person in this room is capable, equipped, and empowered by God to lead one person to Jesus by the end of this year. I believe that you can do it. I know that you can do it. Okay, I have faith in you. You can do it. You can lead people to Jesus. But tragically, here's what's happening in our church, in our nation. Not too long ago, there was a research firm named Barna, and they surveyed evangelical Christians, and here's what they discovered. 95% of Bible-believing, church-going, evangelical Christians have never led one person to Jesus in their life. That means that for a lot of us, we go to church every single week, we raise our hand, we pray the prayer, we sing the songs and sit in the pews and we walk out the door, we're not leading people to Jesus. 95% of Christians have never led one person to Christ. Okay, that's a little convicting, isn't it? Okay, let's consider the flip side. How many Christians do you think have led people away from Christ? How many people do you think have been turned off to following Jesus because of the church? That's exactly what Jesus is getting at. We have the opportunity to either lead people to him or for us to lead people from him. Which one are we doing? Are we being a church that leads people to Jesus, that shows people just how amazing and great Jesus is and how much Jesus loves them and what life change looks like, or are we leading people away by the character and the examples that we set before them? Are you leading people to Jesus or from Jesus? As a Christian, what you have to understand is that the way we live our lives does not only affect us, but it also affects all the people around us, that people are watching you, people are looking to you, people are listening to you, and they're wanting to see if this Jesus stuff is real, and you might be the only Bible that they read, you might be the only Jesus that they meet, and you could be the closest to church they will ever go. How are you living your life? Are you leading people to Jesus, or are you leading people from Jesus? Jesus. Jesus has some strong words to say on this. In fact, here's actually what Jesus says. He says, if you lead one of these little ones to sin, okay, in the Greek right here, that word sin means to be scandalized. It's only one of two times that Mark uses this word for sin, and what it means is if you cause another person for their conscience to be seared, for them to be scandalized, for them to be shocked, for them to be surprised, to where they don't want anything to do with Jesus. They walk away from Jesus. They say, I don't want to listen to it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to be around it. I'm not going. I'm not there because of the character that you have. You have led people away from Jesus. You have caused them to be scandalized, shocked, surprised. 
Then he says, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. A millstone in that day comes from two words, mule stone. They would take a mule and they would thresh out and grind out the grain, basically to walk in circles and crush the grain. And and here's what they would do. They would hook up the mule to a large concrete stone weighing about a ton. Jesus looks at this and says, it would be better for you to take a one-ton cement block, tie it around your throat, be jumping off into the deepest parts of the ocean, the bottom of the sea, and as you're drowning, looking up, gasping for air, there is no hope for you. Jesus takes this very seriously. He says, it would be better for you to die the most painful, unimaginable death that you can think of than for you to live your life in such a way that turns people away from me. Either you're leading people to Jesus or you're leading people from him. What are we doing? How are we living? Okay, here's what you need to understand. If you are a Christian, everything in your life, it preaches. Your life is a sermon, and you would be surprised at who is listening. What you need to understand is that everything preaches. Right now, guess what I'm doing? I'm preaching. Okay, but preaching is not just the words that I say. Preaching is also the way that I live. Okay, every single week, I get the great privilege to be able to, to preach the word. I love it. I just open up the Bible and tell, tell you what it says. Okay, that's how I get the joy of preaching sermons like these. Because I'm just making it up. This is exactly what the Bible says. And so I just open up the Bible and say, this is what the Bible says. If you get mad, you're not mad at me. You're mad at the word. (laughs) Take that up with God. He's the one who wrote it. I'm just the delivery boy. I'm preaching. But preaching is not just what I say on Sunday. Preaching is also the way that I live on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and every single day. Okay, preaching is the way that I love my wife on Monday morning. That's preaching. Preaching is the way that I lead our staff on Tuesday evenings for our deacon meetings. That's, that's preaching. Preaching is our first Wednesday prayers. We gather together as a church, and we make that a priority in our lives. That's, that, that's preaching. Preaching is the way that I raise my daughters. Preaching is the way that I have community group at my house on Thursday nights. Preaching is the way that I spend family nights on Friday nights. Preaching is the way I Sabbath on Saturdays. Preaching is the way that I took Esther's son out for a daddy-daughter date before her sister's born. That's preaching. And then I show up here on Sunday morning, and guess what I get to do? I get to preach. Everything preaches. Now imagine this. If I open up the Bible, and here's what I say. Life change through Jesus is possible. And then I walk off the stage, and I cuss out a deacon, flip you off in traffic, and then cheat on my wife. (laughs) What are you going to say? You're going to say, that guy's a false teacher. I want nothing to do with that. I'm never going back there again. That guy's a liar. He's a hypocrite. I don't want to, I don't want to be around that. I'm not going to listen to it. If that's what Jesus looks like, then you can count me out. I want nothing to do with it. Why? Because of the words that I said? No, but because of the life that I lived. Everything you do preaches. Okay, you need to understand this, that your life is a sermon, and you would be shocked at who's actually listening to you. Like when you go to work, that's a sermon. Okay, how do you talk about your boss behind his back? What message is that sending to your coworkers? That's a sermon. You're preaching a message. Here it says little ones. He's talking about children. For those of us who are parents, your children are looking up to you. Proverbs again says that we are to train up a child in the ways of the Lord so that when he is older, he will not depart. So those of you who are parents, 
What kind of sermon are you preaching to your kids? What kind of discipleship is taking place in your home? Are you leading your children to Jesus or are you leading people from Jesus with the way that you live? You can't just say, you know, say what I, or do what I say and don't do what I do. That, that's not how it works. Your life is a sermon and people are watching you. Like when you leave here today, and you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and you have road rage and you freak out and you cut them off again and you're yelling and honking at them and people are like, whoa, where did that guy come from? And then you have an R bumper sticker on the back of your car. <laughs> Do you think they're going to want to come to church here? Why? Because you just preached a sermon to them. You said, you don't really matter and I don't really care and life changed through Jesus is not real. Or think about it whenever you go out to eat after today, and what you do is you, 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 you gripe at your server, and you put the lady down and the waitress, and she has 17 tables, and she's not even working in her section right now, but you know, you're so concerned about your sweet tea, you freak out on her, and then you stiff her on the tip, and then you leave a you are invited card. Do you think she's going to come to church here? No. Why? Because she doesn't want to sit next to you. If this is what if that's what happens at this church, if that's what life change looks like, then you can count me out. Everything preaches. Or think about it like whenever you're posting on Facebook. Okay, let's say on Facebook, you, you write a mean, racist, political post. You share it. Well, then the very next one, you're like, hey, come to First Wednesday prayer night with us. Do you think people are going to want to come to that? No, why? Because they don't want to pray with you. Right? You're the one who needs prayer. <laughs> because you're preaching a sermon that nobody wants to hear. Everything in your life preaches. Your life is a sermon, and you would be surprised at who's actually listening to what you say. Right? People are listening. People are watching. The world is looking to us. Are we going to be about what we say that we're about? Are we going to show the world that life change is for real, that we have been forgiven, that we have been made new, that we have been redeemed, that we are new creations in Christ Jesus? Our old is gone, new has come, and are we living out this new life? Is the way that we are living indicative of what God has done in us and for us and through us? Are we leading people to Jesus, or are we leading leading people away from him. Your life is a sermon. People are listening. Everything preaches. He says, if you're leading people away, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the deepest of seas. Jesus is very real. And I want to say something right here. Who is Jesus saying this to? It's to his disciples. It's a one-on-one -on -one conversation that Jesus has with his followers. He's not talking to the crowd. He's not talking to the Pharisees. He's not talking to the unbelievers. He's not talking to skeptics. He's not talking to non-Christians. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. And he pulls them in and has this conversation. Why? Because hard words make soft hearts. He's willing to have the difficult conversation. Hard words make soft hearts, but on the flip side, what the Puritans would say is this, is that soft words make hard hearts. And Jesus loves you enough to get honest with you because he has a plan for you. He has called you. He has chosen you. He knows you can do this. And that's the reason why he's sitting you down, saying, I love you. Come on in. Let's have this conversation. Are you leading people to me or from me? He's doing this because he loves them. And he has so much more in store for them. I wholeheartedly believe that every single one of you can lead one person to Jesus by the end of this year.
You've been gifted. You're capable. Okay, you've listened to me preach for long enough. You should be able to string something together. I talk for an hour every week. But you know what? You have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and you can do this. People have relationship with you. Just look around at the relationships that you do have and ask yourself, am I leading people to him or from him? And this is an opportunity for me to stay or change. Which one are you going to do? Anybody convicted? Okay, well, it's going to get worse. (laughs) Are you killing sin? Or is your sin killing you? Told you, Jesus is getting real. Here's what he says. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, obviously, Jesus is not advocating for you to literally cut your hand, feet, and tear your eyes out. Okay, that's actually not what Jesus is advocating. Some people are like, well, I take the Bible literally. Okay, no, you don't. Okay, or you would be cutting your hands and feet and eyes out, and we have a lot of dudes walking around with a limp and an eye patch trying to shake your hand. It's not going to work. That's not what Jesus is actually advocating. Here's what Jesus is actually saying. Jesus is using a literary device known as hyperbole. Okay, he's exaggerating. Hyperbole means to go over the top. He's being over the top. He's being dramatic because he wants to illustrate a point. And what Jesus is trying to get at is this, that as Christians... We have an obligation before the Lord to be serious about sin, to take our sin seriously, that we should be devoted to the eradication of sin in our lives, that we should be grieved over sin, that we should hate sin, that we should repent over sin, and we should do whatever we can, which in is our strength to not live our lives in sin. Sin is like a cancer. It's a disease that affects all of creation, and it infects and affects everything that we see. When you turn on the TV and you see war and injustice and famine and plagues, the cause of that is sin. When you see natural disasters, the cause of that is sin. When you see brother against brother, that's sin. When you see addiction, that's a cause of sin. Whenever you see pain and hurt and grief, all of that is a result of sin. And when you see death, that is the ultimate result of sin, that sin always leads leads to death because it is a disease and it is a cancer and it kills everything that it touches. And so if we have a cancer, what do we do? We, we, we got to take the medicine. Okay, and, and the first step is that you would go to the doctor or MD Anderson or wherever you need to go and you would try to take chemotherapy, maybe radiation. You would do some you know, naturopathic remedies to be able to cure the cancer that's inside of you. Now, what happens if that does not work? Well, then you have to go to great lengths and extremes to be able to remove the cancer. And sometimes you can't remove the cancer, and so you actually have to amputate. And then you have to remove whatever it is the cancer is found in. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. 
He's saying this. If you are too weak to resist sin, then you need to be strong enough to remove it. If you don't kill sin, eventually your sin will kill you. If you don't treat the cancer, eventually the cancer will kill you. If you don't kill sin, eventually the sin will kill you. If you are too weak to resist sin, then you need to be strong enough to be able to remove it. Sin is a very big deal, and here Jesus gets real. Now, in our day and age, we don't really make a big deal about sin. In fact, a lot of people, because they don't understand the severity and the eternality around sin, well, what they do is they, they actually celebrate it. So, I mean, I've seen people have parties for divorces. I've seen, you know, parades for what the Bible calls wickedness. We have turned on the TV. There's, you know, witchcraft and there's all sorts of sorcery. There's the mixing of different religions and calling it tolerance. You see greed and lust and pride and pornography everywhere you look. And people are so desensitized and numb to sin that they have just fallen asleep with cancer. And because we don't do anything about it, especially in the church, well, then there's a lot of people who are ignorant and ill-informed when it comes to, to sin or the consequences behind it. And so the most teaching, a lot of people here around sin these days, now back in the 60s and 70s, that's all they talked about, sin, fire, and hell. Like, that's it. This was a preacher's favorite verse. But today, well, we've kind of neutered God a little bit. We're like, oh, we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to turn anybody away. You know, maybe we're going to have non-believers in the room, so we really want them to like us. And so let's not, let's not say anything too controversial because, well, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a big kids party and there's a bouncy castle. We want them to come back. And so, well, we've really tamed the scriptures in that regard. I didn't say this in first sermon, but I'm going to say this right now. When I first became a preacher here at this church, before the church ever even opened its doors, we had what we call preview gatherings, services where 20 people would show up and hopefully they would decide to be our church. And I remember we were at the gig in downtown Beaumont and we had ice cream for everybody and I just wanted people to like us a lot and maybe come back to the next gathering. And I was doing some vision teachings out of the Bible, talking about the type of church that we dream to be. And I was teaching out of Ephesians and the importance of redemption. As I'm going through it, I get to the part to where it talks about the reality of hell. That apart from Jesus, people will die and spend eternity in hell. And as I'm preaching through this text, I know that part's coming and I get really nervous. And I start thinking, well, what if I offend people? It, They've never been here before. I want them to come back. What if they get mad at me? I mean, they just signed up for the serve team. And then if I offend them, they're never going to come back. We might never get this church up off the ground. And I can't do that. And I started preaching and I got really nervous. And I began, my palms were sweaty and I was very anxious. Am I going to say it? I mean, I'm a young preacher and I want people to know. And I've never even really preached a sermon before. This is going to be intense. What do I do? And when I got to the part of the sermon where I was supposed to talk about hell, I skipped it because I wanted people to like me. And in that moment, I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit speak directly to my heart, and he said, Byron, what kind of church are you planting here? And that's the day that I determined expositional preaching will be the way that we do it, and that's the way that I'm going to preach.
Now, is there grace? Yes. Tons of grace. We're going to get to grace in a little bit. But right now, you need to understand that sin is not, grace, grace is not a license for you to continue to live in sin. That Jesus did not die the death for sin so you can continue to live in sin. The Apostle Paul says, death no longer has dominion over you. Sin no longer has rule over you. That you are not dead. You have been raised to new life with Christ. Jesus didn't die the death for sin so you can keep living in your sin. Jesus died the death for sin so that you can put your sin to death. Either you kill sin or sin will kill you. It's just the way that it is. And some people say, mm, Byron, you're just trying to scare me. There's, that's not real. I'm not trying to scare you, but I am trying to make you aware. This is a very big deal, and Jesus gets very real. I mean, just consider the way that Jesus actually talks about it. Look what Jesus says. He says this. It's better for you to go to heaven with one hand than for you to go to hell with two hands. Jesus says, it's better for you to limp in the kingdom of God with one foot than for you to have two feet and to burn in hell. Jesus says, it's better for you to wear an eye patch in heaven than for you to have 20-20 vision while burning in hell where the flame never dies and the worm never dies. This is a big deal. This is very serious. You need to understand there are consequences for the decisions that you make, that hell is real. Hell is hot and forever is a very long time. If you do not kill your sin, your sin eventually will kill you. Yes. And then some of you are like, no, 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 no. Jesus would never say that. That's not Jesus. Actually, if you look in your Bible right now, it's all written in red. These are Jesus' very words. So we say, Jesus is kind, he's gracious, he's loving. He would never talk about hell. In fact, Jesus talks about hell more than any other preacher in the entire Bible. Roughly 13% of Jesus' sermons dealt with the reality of hell. One-third of Jesus' parables spoke over judgment and punishment and hell. Jesus speaks on hell more than anyone else. And yes, he is kind, and yes, he is gracious, and yes, he is loving. And what does it tell you that the most loving person who ever walked on the face of this planet, God in the flesh, is warning you? He's warning you because he loves you. He's warning you because he wants you to understand the consequences of sin. Sin destroys everything. Do you know what destroys marriages? It's sin. It's not because two people fell out of love and couldn't agree on a budget. It's sin. And because you don't know how to deal with sin, you kill the marriage instead of killing the sin. Do you know what kills relationships? It's sin. Right? It's not because you had a falling out. It's because someone did something that offended you, and because you're too passive aggressive to actually address the problem, you walk away from them. Because you don't know how to deal with sin, you end up killing the relationship. You end up killing the friendship. Same thing that happens with families. Whenever brother turns against brother, it's not because they're arguing over Uncle Bobby's will. It's because there's greed there, and they don't know how to deal with the sin, so they kill the family. They kill the brother. They kill the sister. They kill the relationship because there's bitterness, and there's unforgiveness, and there's an unwillingness to deal with the problem, and so you kill the wrong thing. 
That's all sin. Do you know what destroys people? It's sin. Do you know what sends people to hell? It's sin. Some people would say, okay, Byron, I don't know if I understand or believe. Are you saying that God sends people to hell? In one sense, that is true. That God is sovereign, but at the same time, God's not up in heaven playing duck, duck, damn, trying to figure out who he's going to condemn. That God, in a sense, does not send anyone to hell. You send yourself. Because of an unwillingness to repent and to turn and to kill your sin. God's not up in heaven trying to figure out, oh, how can I get this person to burn forever? Here's what God's doing. He sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In 2 Peter, it says that he is patient with us. He is gracious with us, desiring that none shall perish. Basically, if you go to hell, it's because you jumped over Jesus' dead body to get there. You sent your self to hell because of the unwillingness to kill your sin. Because if you don't kill it, it's going to kill you. It says chop it off. Get rid of it. Do whatever you can to avoid it. It's that big of a deal. But let's dive down just a little bit deeper. Since I have you all here right now, let's do it. The actual Greek word that Jesus uses here is called Gehenna. And if you're familiar with the Bible, in the Old Testament, this is a place that's known as the Valley of Haman. And in the book of 2 Chronicles, there were some wicked, godless kings who turned the nation away from the Lord of the Bible and began to worship false demon gods, one of them known as Molech. And the way that you worship Molech is you would go down into the Valley of Haman and you would murder your children. They would have child sacrifices. So basically, the priest would put the child up on the altar, and as the child screaming, slit their throat, drain their blood, and set them on fire. It's the way they worship their Lord. And the screams from the children would go in day in and day out to where you could hear them in the city of Jerusalem. So they came up with a plan. They said, well, instead of just stopping killing babies, we'll just actually just start playing the drums. And it became known as the Valley of the Drums because the only way for them to drown out the screams of the children were to beat the drums louder and louder and louder. And then another king named King Asa, which actually was a godly good king, he was mortified over what was happening in the nation. So he said, nope, we're done. That's over. And then he made it illegal, got rid of the false gods. And then he took the Valley of Ammon and he turned it into Gehenna, which means the trash. So all of Jerusalem's garbage and feces and refuge and compost and dead bodies and cemeteries were all moved into the Valley of Ammon. And as the trash and the garbage continued piling up, well, all of a sudden, you could smell it from Jerusalem. And so then they just set it all on fire. This is why Jesus says the worm never dies, because there's rotting maggots and worms that are continually just never ends. And the fire is never quenched because it burns day in and day out, continuously forever. And what Jesus is saying is this. If you don't deal with your sin, that's where you go. To the eternal garbage dump. Trash forever, where the worm never dies and flame never ends. Very big deal. Jesus gets very real. 
So what do we do? How do we avoid this? Well, Jesus says, remove your hands, remove your feet, remove your eyes. So what is he getting at? The hands represent the things you do, the feet represent the places you go, and the eyes represent what you see. Basically saying, all of your life needs to be devoted to either resisting sin or removing sin. All of your life needs to be devoted to repentance, which means turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said the beginning of Christian life is one of repentance. And every single day after that is a life of repentance, that your whole life is turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. Jesus died for sin so you can be forgiven and you can put the sin to death, but that's not an excuse for you to continue to live in your sin. Kill it. If you're not strong enough to resist it, then by God's grace, you gotta be strong enough to remove it. So let's just get real for a moment. Pornography. If your iPhone causes you to sin, get rid of it. If you can't have an iPhone without being tempted, get rid of it. You say, but I have to have a phone. Well, then get a flip phone. Better for you to have a flip phone in heaven than an iPhone in hell. People think you're retro. You're like, Hey, look, it's the 80s. Come back again. I'm Zach Morris. I got a flip phone, right? Hey, that's fine as long as you're resisting sin. But if you're not strong enough to resist it, you need to be strong enough to remove it, get rid of it. For others of you, it's alcohol. Now, is drinking alcohol sin? No. But if you can't control it, it is. Drunkenness is a sin. So if two beers turns to 10 beers for you, guess what? You don't get to drink anymore. If you can't resist it, then you need to kill it. And if your best friend drinks, then you don't get to drink with him anymore either. Because if you cause another person to sin, then that's a millstone around your neck. I mean, let's just, let's just keep talking, right? Let's talk about relationships. Maybe a friendship. So you're new to church, you just got saved, you met Jesus, woohoo! you were baptized. But your other friends, well, they're not really walking with the Lord. And before you came to Jesus, you spent your whole life just hooking up with chicks, going to bars, playing beer pong, and doing blow. You don't get to go hang out with those friends anymore. You need to cut it off. You say, well, well, but we've been best friends since we were in fifth grade. That's fine. But you've changed. And if they're unwilling to change, then they can't keep going with you anymore. You have to draw boundaries. You have to cut the line. If you're not strong enough to resist the sin, then you have to be strong enough to remove it. And you could say something like this. Hey, look, I met Jesus. I want you to meet him too. He's totally changed my life. But, you know, I, I can't be closing down bars with you anymore until 2 o'clock in the morning. How about I go to bed at 10 and then you come to church with me? I'm on the serve team. We'll be able to have, have you. Like, you can come to community group with me. Like, that'd be fun. We can go to IHOP and get some breakfast. Like, that's cool. But I, I, can't, I can't be going out and closing down bars and picking up chicks with you anymore. I'm out. If you're not strong enough to resist your sin, then you need to be strong enough to be able to remove it. Same with relationships. I meet so many young Christian women who meet non-believing guys and think, I can change him. No, you can't. You can't change him. And so these young Christian girls, and I use the ladies as an example, not as a negative example, because it happens to the guys, but it's just harder for Christian guys to actually ask a girl on a date, so it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> Christian guys are like, the Astros, swing and miss. Oh, too close. (laughs) 
But then they start dating and then think, oh, he's nice and he's cute and he looked in my direction. And then eventually, because he doesn't want to hear the word of God and he doesn't want to go to church with them and he doesn't want anything to do with that, then they start having questions and they start, well, you know, I don't really think it's that big of a deal. And they start making compromises. And then they go from being holy to the Lord. And well, then they start spending the night with them. They develop soul ties between one another. They listen to the guy and they stop listening to the Christian friends. They stop coming to church. They dip on their group. They stop serving. And pretty soon they've walked away from the church and the guy has them right where he wants her. And She's not where God wants her to be. And now she's all alone. And she's away from the Lord. If you're not strong enough to resist sin, you need to be strong enough to remove it. Because eventually it will kill you. If your hand causes you sin, chop it off. And I can tell there's conviction in the room. Okay, so let me tell you a story from my own life. Just so you know, your pastor's not perfect. Before I met Jesus, my life was Jack, right? I mean, I was on drugs, strung out, partying, alcoholic, popping pills, hooking up, very promiscuous, making terrible decisions in my life. I met Jesus at the age of 20. And that's also the same time I met Ashley, my wife. And as we became Christians, for the first two years, not a lot in my life actually began to change. I still was living in my old ways, and I don't know how many people I led away from the Lord instead of actually to him. And I joined a community group, and there was one of my closest friends in that community group. He sat me down, and he said, Byron, we need to have a conversation. We have a come-to-Jesus moment. It was an intervention. And he says, you're not living in ways that are indicative of a Christian life. He said, I know that you're getting drunk and partying all the time, and I, and I know that you're sleeping with Ashley. You say you're not living together, but you basically are, just the way it is. And he had the courage to be able to speak truth and love to me and call me out. He pointed me to 1 Corinthians where it says, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so I had a decision I had to make. Will I repent or reject the message? Will I receive or will I walk away? Will I get bitter or will I get better? Will I be offended or will I apply what the scripture says to my life? I had a choice. And so here's what I decided to do. I decided to chop off my hand by putting a ring on her finger. Guys, if you can't keep your hands to yourself, either put a ring on her finger or chop off your hand. People ask me, why, why did you get married so young? The real reason is I couldn't keep my hands to myself. I loved her. I wanted to honor her. I love the Lord. I want to do what's right by him, live according to the word. I wanted to be with her, and so I stopped making excuses. I asked the girl to marry me, and we had a backyard wedding. 11 years, we're still married, we're still resisting sin, we're still repenting with one another, three church plants, two little girls. God's still working in our lives. If you can't keep your hands to yourself, then chop off your hand or put a ring on her finger. Amen. And now I don't have to keep my hands to myself. Sin is a big deal, but Jesus comes to deal with sin. 
There is a way for you to deal with your sin, and it's through the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So for those of you who feel guilt, shame, and condemnation, that's not from the Lord, that's from the enemy. And what he's wanting to do right now is rob you of God's destiny for your life. And I just feel impressed by the Holy Spirit to say this right now that these words are not words that are supposed to beat you up, but these are words that are supposed to build you up. That God's word is like that surgeon who goes in to be able to bring life, to be able to remove the cancer, and to be able to give you your future back. That's what God's word is to do. And so what I want for you to do is I want you to receive it and not reject it. And I want you to know that God has a plan and a purpose that's amazing over you. And he does not want you to walk away from here the same way that you walked in these doors. Which leads us to our third point. Last one. Are you living in the kingdom or are you living in the culture? For everyone will be salted with fire. Fire. Like this is a reference actually to worship. He says, everyone will be salted with fire, okay? What this is symbolic of is Leviticus chapter two, that if you wanted to worship the Lord, you would bring a grain offering, mix it with salt, throw it on the fire, and then it would create an aroma or an incense that's pleasing to the Lord, and that's just your way of saying, thank you, I love you, you're amazing, you're awesome, I'm worshiping you. It was called a free will offering, and so you would mix it with salt, and then you throw it on the fire, and that's the way that you worship. And Jesus says, everyone will be salt with fire. What he's saying is everyone will worship, right? The question is not, will you worship? The question is, who will you worship? The question is not, when will you worship? Because you're always worshiping. The question is, who will you worship? We worship someone or something, or you worship the someone who made everything, but either way, you will worship. And the question is, are you worshiping in the kingdom or are you worshiping in the culture? Here's how he puts it. He puts it like this. Salt is good, but the salt has lost its saltiness. How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Probably today we don't understand what Jesus is getting at because, well, salt is just salt, right? That's just salt. How can salt lose its saltiness? Isn't that what salt is? Isn't salt salty? Like, that's just the way that it is. But the disciples, they would understand this because in that day, there was actually two different types of salt. There was the pure salt that came from the Sea of Galilee, and then there was the impure, the mixed salt that comes from the region of Judea. And it was mixed with what's known as gypsum. And if the pure salt mixes with the gypsum, then over time, well, then it loses its saltiness. It's no longer it's no longer a value, and it actually becomes worthless. And so when you throw your salt on the fire, Well, the gypsum salt, well, it's no good. It's the pure salt that creates the pure form of worship. And what Jesus is actually getting at is this, is that you can't mix things. You can't have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the culture. You can't worship God and worship the world at the same time. That your worship needs to be pure and holy or it's worthless and worldly. You cannot mix the two. The disciples would understand what Jesus is getting at. And here's what he's saying, is that you are either sold out to Jesus or you are a sellout to the world. That's it. You can't mix the two. You cannot live with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the culture. You cannot live with one foot in God's word and one foot in the ways of this world. You are either sold out to Jesus or you are a sellout to the world. What would your life look like if you were just sold out to Jesus? 
I mean, what would your life look like if you just said, today is the day that I'm going to live my life on passion, on fire, fired up, ready for Jesus, every single moment, totally devoted to him. What would your life look like if you stopped living in the culture and you began living in the kingdom? I can tell you this, that you will give up nothing that God will not give back to you a hundredfold. The moment you open your eyes in heaven, there will be no regrets. The moment you open your eyes in the kingdom, you will not be looking back on the things you sacrificed in this life. The moment you open your eyes in heaven, it's all going to make sense, and he's going to give you more than anything you could ever imagine. You will not have any regrets when you live in the kingdom of God. Whatever's hindering you, whatever's holding you back, just let that go, and God's going to give you so much more when you live in the kingdom of God. Amen. Rather than trying to tiptoe here in this world. You either live in the kingdom or you live in the culture. You're either sold out to him or you're sell out to the world. Can I just say something? There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. Okay, you're either a Christian or a counterfeit. You're either a disciple or you're a disappointment. There is no in-between. You can't make a difference and make excuses at the same time. You're either in or you're out. You're either sold out to Jesus or you're sell out to the world. Does that mean you're perfect? No, but by God's grace, you are making progress and you recognize where you're at and you take the steps necessary to turn and to continue to walk in passion and love and in grace with him. It doesn't matter if you're perfect, but by God's grace, be making some progress. Be sold out to him. I'm tired of seeing Christians who make it to heaven by the skin of their teeth. I'm tired of seeing churches being so cowardly that they actually miss out on their purpose because they don't call people to holiness. I'm tired of seeing people tiptoe between the world and in the word. I mean, people are like, well, I just, what if they think I'm weird? Newsflash, we're Christians, we're weird. We're supposed to be weird. I mean, we worship a guy who was born of a virgin and died on the cross and then rose from the grave. Some of y'all speak in tongues. That's weird. We're supposed to be where Jesus is coming back one day. Yes. That's weird. That's weird. We're weird. You're supposed to be weird. But many Christians have lost their weird because they want to be loved by the world. That you so desperately desire to be loved by the world that you've lost out on the very thing that makes you you. The love and the grace and the salvation that comes from Jesus. You're like, what if people don't like me? What if people make fun of me? So what? Worry more about what God thinks about you than what other people think about you. Learn more about what God's word says about you than what other people say about you. You want to be unique? You want to be an individual? You want to be somebody who stands out? You want to be different? You want to be punk rock? I'll tell you how to do it. Here's how you do it. Live in the kingdom of God. You really want to be different? You want people to think, wow, look at that person. Here's what you do. Go to church, raise your kids, love your wife, praise your God. That's what you do. Nobody's doing that anymore. Like, that's the only punk rock thing left for us to do in this world. Like, keep a job and keep your pants on. Come on. Everybody else is getting drunk and downloading porn and getting divorces and yelling at their kids and totally wasting their life. Don't live a wasted life. Live a life of worship. Live for a purpose. Live for a reason. Live for the kingdom of God. Are you living in the culture? Are you living in the kingdom? I mean, guys, it's time for us to just get real. 
And when we get real with Jesus, that's when he gets real with us. Are you tired of pretending? Are you tired of playing games? Are you tired of saying one thing and doing another thing and living your life under such bondage and oppression? Are you tired of feeling fake? Are you tired of being plastic? Are you tired of pretending? Then just get real with Jesus. Are you leading people to him or from him? Straight up. Are you killing your sin or is your sin killing you? Are you living in the kingdom or are you living in a culture? When you get real with Jesus, that's when he gets real with you. Do you know why Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples? They've been following him for two and a half years. And they're just going through the motions now. And Jesus pulls them in. And he tells them, guys, your heart is not in it anymore. You're just going through the motions, just like I was in my church plant back in Houston just going straight through the motions. And their character and their convictions had betrayed them, and they were no longer living up to the purposes that God had saved them for. And Jesus brings them in because he loves them. And he sits down with them and says, guys, I have chosen you. I have called you. I've spent two and a half years preparing you. You're better than this. I have something amazing I want to do in your life. And if you miss this, then you miss out on everything that I want to do. And he brings them in. He has a come to Jesus moment. He has an intervention. He has the hard conversation with his disciples. And they have a choice. Will they stay or will they change? Will they get bitter or will they get better? Will they receive the correction or will they reject it and walk away? This is one of the beautiful things about preaching expositionally. I know I've been talking about it all sermon, but I, I love it. And here's, here's the beautiful thing. It's because when you study God's word straight through like this, you get to see the character arc over time. And so we've been in Mark 7, 8, and 9 for 10 weeks. So last sermon in this series, we pick it up in January again. But throughout this entire little mini-series we've been doing, the disciples have become disappointments. The disciples have actually stopped moving forwards and they started moving backwards. They've just been going through the motions and their life is beginning to fall apart. I mean, let's just consider what we've read so far. In Mark 7, they tried to stop Jesus from healing a deaf man. Mark 8, there was the feeding of the 4,000. He had already done the miracle before and they say, Jesus, you can't feed all of these people. And then they argue with the Pharisees and scribes and then they get in the boats and they forget the bread and then they start arguing about how Jesus is not going to actually take care of them and they're all going to starve to death. And then Jesus calls Peter Satan, which is not a good day for Peter. And then Peter tries to stop Jesus from going to the cross. And then they go up to the top of a mountain and Moses and Elijah show up and Peter's like, Jesus, it's good for you that I'm here. Let's pitch some tents. Let's stay on this mountain forever. We never have to go to Jerusalem and you don't have to die on a cross or resurrect from the grave. This is amazing. Everybody come look at me. And then they failed to cast out a demon. And then after that, they started arguing with the scribes about why they couldn't cast out the demon. And then they started arguing with one another about who was going to be the greatest. Who is going to sit at Jesus' right hand in the kingdom of God? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be me? Who's the greatest out of all of us? And then some dude's successful casting out demons. And they said, hey, what are you doing casting out demons? That's our job. Even though we failed at it, we can't celebrate you. you knock it off. You're not one of the 12. And then they get mad at Jesus about why they couldn't cast out the demons. And Jesus says, you forgot to pray. You got so used to doing life without me that you no longer even have to believe in me. And then Jesus straight up calls them faithless. They've lost their salt. They've been going through the motions. 
They've gotten so used to following Jesus that they don't actually follow him anymore. And so Jesus brings them in and he says, guys, there is no plan B. You're it. The cross is six months away from Jesus. The cross is six months away. Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. He's going to be arrested, handed over to the chief priests and scribes, murdered, dead, and buried. And then everything else is in the hands of these 12 men. What if they don't have this conversation? What if they don't actually get real with Jesus? What if Peter's like, hmm, that's a tough word. I think I'm out. No Pentecost, no church, no book of Acts. Paul never gets saved. Missionaries never get sent. You and me are still in our sins. Four people, four billion people in the world today will not know Jesus. Redemption Church will never be here. The future depends on how they respond to this conversation. The future is determined by how they react to this conversation, that people's lives and legacies are hinging on their response, that the future of humanity, the future of the church, the future of eternity depends on these 12 men just being willing and honest and saying, Jesus, I'm gonna get real with you so you can be real to me. And when they got real with Jesus, everything began to change. They had a decision, and you have a decision as well. The future of your life depends on the decision you make today. That there are lives that are hanging in the balance today. There are legacies. There are generations of children with your last name who are depending on the decision that you make today. That this city depends on the decision you make today. That your coworkers and friends who are lost depend on this decision that you make today. Your wife or your husband depend on this. Your children depend on this. Your life, your legacy, your eternity hinges on the decision that you make today. Are you willing to get real with Jesus so he can be real to you? It's a come-to-Jesus moment for all of us. Are we willing to be real with Jesus so he can be real with you? For some of you, it's time for you to get real and for you just to say, you know what? I have not been leading people to Christ. In fact, the way I live might be actually leading people away from him. And for you to get real with Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. For some of you, it's time for you to get real and say, you know what, my sin's killing me. I'm tired of getting beat up by this sin. I'm tired of living in shame. I'm tired of everything being a secret. I'm tired of not being able to be honest or go to community group and take the mask off. I'm tired of pretending my sin is killing me. Jesus died the death for sin, so you could put that sin to death. It doesn't have to kill you. You can kill it. Get the help you need. Repent, turn, come forward for prayer. We want to be there for you. But don't live your life in secret and shame. Get rid of the sin instead of carrying the shame. And then lastly, are you living in the kingdom or the culture? You will not give up anything that God will not give back to you tenfold when you open your eyes in heaven. There are no regrets in heaven. Any regret you have is regret that you're holding on to right now. Just give it up and get real with him so he can be real with you. Time is too short. Life is too precious for us to waste it instead of investing it on the way that God wants us to live. Are you willing to be real with Jesus? And I can guarantee you this. When you get real with him, man, he is going to be so real with you. So here's what I want to do. We're going to close 
with 60 seconds of silence for you to get real with Jesus. 60 seconds. For those of you who are not Christians during this time, I would just beg of you and plead with you to consider the words of Jesus and then to give your life to him. Hell is a very real place and he doesn't want you to go there. He's been warning you all day. He's been stirring in your heart all day. Give your life to him. Repent and turn and be forgiven. And there's a church here who's going to love you and walk with you. And if you are a Christian, you still have this opportunity to get real with Jesus. So that way you can continue to grow in your faith to where he brings up those things in your life that he wants to change to where you can live your life in such a way that brings glory to him and good to others. We all need to get real with Jesus. And when we get real with him, that's when he gets real with us. So what we're going to do is we're going to take 60 seconds, and I want you to get real with him. If you want to turn your chair into an altar and kneel down at your chair, that's fine. If you're here with a spouse, then hold your wife's hands. If you're here with your community group and they're sitting with them and there's something on you, just, just pray with them, whatever it is. But get real with Jesus so that way he can be real with you. We're going to set the timer for 60 seconds, and we're just going to, we're just going to pray. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh.